You are listening to Cornelia Church. Passion for God, compassion for people. All right, well, good morning once again. It is a beautiful day today. I'm loving the cooler weather, aren't you? It's just nice to have a little change of season. Boy, we are in a treat this for in for a treat this morning. Pastor Frank Damasio is with us. He's been with us this weekend. Uh, if you were here yesterday uh, during our seminar, taking your church to the next level, it was pretty incredible. It was pretty awesome. If you weren't here, you missed it. Uh, and it was worthwhile. Uh, so, so appreciative. I'm so grateful uh, for Frank and Sharon taking the time out of their b- very busy schedule to fly down. They, they live up in Portland and were able to fly down uh, to the little city of Hanford. When, when we landed, uh, when they landed in Fresno, I picked them up on Friday evening. Uh, he said, Andrew, he said, I'm not, I don't really remember where Hanford is. And I said, well, get used to that. That's kind of pretty normal for everybody. He said, are we, are, are, is the airport close uh, to, to, to where we're going? I said, oh, yeah, Pastor Frank, it, absolutely, absolutely. We'll be there in just a few minutes, in just a few minutes. We are so, we are so uh, blessed to have Pastor Frank with us. He's a man who is a church planter, a church leader over many decades. He oversees the church network that we're a part of, MFI. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we were up in Portland uh, with a number of our staff for the global conference uh, that he oversees, and uh, it, was, it was incredible. It was equipping. Uh, it was experiential. It was just um, inspirational. I came back feeling... Uh, once again, energized for the things that God wants to do in the earth and in our church in particular. And whenever somebody like uh, Pastor Frank uh, is available to come and to speak, uh, what he brings with him is not just good information. It's not just a nice talk. What he brings is an impartation of years worth of digging into the word of God, years worth of understanding at a deep level, applying the principles of scripture. So as he speaks this morning, he's not just going to talk to you from a head knowledge. He's going to talk to your spirit is going to talk to your heart. And and so as you receive today and as you listen today, I just want to encourage you, listen with your whole being, kind of move your, if you need to kind of sit forward in your seat a little bit, just to remind yourself, I'm not falling asleep right now. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to receive everything there is today. And, and would you just give him that verbal feedback? Uh, let him know that we're, we're engaging with him because if you do that, you're going to receive uh, more than what you expect. Because what you're going to receive today, it really is an impartation of the Spirit of the Lord and what he wants to speak to us. We're in a series on uh, missions, uh, and the word he's going to bring today is going to fit right into that. And so would you please welcome, with a loud shout, and put your hands together, Pastor Frank Damasio. Well, good morning. Hanford. God knows where Hanford is. What a beautiful city, beautiful area. Uh, I'm actually uh, born and raised in California, down in Fallbrook, California, and then Riverside. And so uh, that was my early life. And so I am a California lover. And then I went to college up in Oregon and stayed there and have been there for the last hundred years. <laughs> and so uh, it's great. It's great to be in California. And, I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to speak to Koinonia, uh, the church. Uh, I honor your pastors. Uh, they're great pastors. Uh, I talk to Andrew once a month, and uh, we go through and talk about church and ministry and staff. And uh, he's a, a very insightful leader, a uh, very skilled leader, uh, strategic in how he goes about things. Uh, I think you have a, a real winner in him and his wife as pastors. Come on, let's give them a hand this morning. Thank you, uh, Andrew, for being a, a passionate leader for the local church. I also have with me my one and only wife. We've been married 46 years. Uh, and so, Sharon, will you stand? This is, this is my wife right over there. I took her from Australia to fulfill my mission's obligation, uh, taking the nations for the world. Uh, 46 years, four children later, we pastored and now oversee the group that I oversee, and then we uh, work with churches and pastors all the time. Uh, Great to be in this atmosphere. I know we've reversed the order a little bit because I have to fly out 
uh, actually leave this service early to get to my flight to get home so I can then do some things and then go to Phoenix. And so I apologize for leaving early. There's nothing wrong with the service. Uh, if you see me slip out, you know, it's not like, oh, there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong. I just got to leave. Uh, <clears throat> so let's jump into the Word uh, this morning and uh, communicate on a very important issue. Uh, my sermon, my title for what I'm doing today is called Every Church Mandate and Mission. Every Church's Mandate and Mission. Every Church's Mandate and Mission. A mandate is something that is authoritative. It's not a conversation of negotiation. It's a response of obedience to the person who gives the command. Our person is Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the head of operations. So his mandate that he gives us, what he says to us, is non-negotiable. There's things in Scripture that are non-negotiable. And there's things that a church receives that are non-negotiable. It's the mandate and it's the mission that God has for your church. When you were saved, you were born again, and you immediately found Christ in your life. When that happened, it says that the Holy Spirit is added to your spirit, and that transformation is what makes up a new man. The Holy Spirit in you, with your spirit, interwoven together, makes up a brand new person. So from that point on, you think different, or you should if you're truly born again. You read the Bible. You're hungry for things you weren't hungry for before. So you pray. You learn to pray. You learn to worship. You learn to understand who Jesus is, and you start growing in the things of God. When you were saved, supernaturally, immediately, another event happened to you, which you might not be aware of, but it happens to every person who is born again. You're not only in Christ, because that's what Pauline theology says, that when we're born again, we're in Christ. We, we live in him, we breathe in him, we, we're in Christ. We're forgiven by him. The blood of Jesus covers our life, and so we live through him. We, we are in Christ. Everyone say, in Christ. in Christ. And so that's my first experience. But I'm also immediately born into the church. I'm a part of the body of Christ. Immediately when I'm born again, I'm added to the church worldwide. I become part of the worldwide church. Wherever I go from that point on, if I find believers in Afghanistan or Romania or, or South America, I'm part of them. I will feel that. I will know that. I'll, I'll attend the church down there. I'll find the believers. Why? Because I'm added to the worldwide church immediately when I get saved. Acts 2.47 says that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, after Jesus ascended, was moving in the people, and it says in Acts 2.47, and he added to the church those that were being saved. And so immediately, you're added to the church. Not only the world church, but you should be added to a local church. And so that's why you're here today. You're in a local church here in Hanford. This is your church. This is your time. This is your gathering. So you are joined together with this church. So you're in Christ and you're in the church. That's a parallel life that you live. And so the Bible teaches that because we're in the church, there are things that happen as we're joined to the body. We use our gifts to build up the body of Christ. We actually have relationships in the body of Christ. That's why communion is so important, because communion was birthed out of conflict, and communion was birthed so that you can cleanse relational conflict, and you can draw near to the blood of Jesus and the bread, the body, the symbolic meaning of that, the power that's in the body and blood of Jesus. So we take communion. And so when we gather together, we pray for one another. We worship together. We receive other people's gifts. We get fed by the Word of God. We have uh, worship where we connect to the corporate praise. There's something different in my solo experience in Christ. That's my solo ride. 
to my corporate ride being in the church. And so I can worship and I can pray by myself. And you should. It's called devotional life. And so I can worship and pray by myself. But there is something special when I gather with other believers. And when I gather with all the believers, like in this service this morning, and I worship with you, there's a difference of worship in the corporate setting than just in the private setting because I'm joined to you. I'm joined to the church. The church is in me. I'm in you. And we are building each other up to become the body of Christ. And so whatever, now just remember this, and I know you know it, but whatever God does in the church affects your life. And so as you belong to a local church, what God says to that church, the moving of the spirit, the transformational power to change the church, the vision of the church, the values of the church, the reach of the church, the things that the church will do will affect your family will affect you and your children, you and your spouse, the classes you take and the mindset you will have, the values you'll begin to espouse to, the way it shapes your personality on decision-making and integrity. And those things begin to get into you because you're in the church and the church is helping you being shaped and transformed as an individual. So whatever God says to the church as it is in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, when you have the seven churches of Asia Minor, it's all about letters being written to those churches. Every letter is different because every church is different. But it says this to every church. Every letter has this phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so you're here, and you have a spiritual set of ears, and you need to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to your church at this time in your season so that you can do all you can do to add your gifts and your faith to what the Lord is saying to the church. Now, when it comes to Christ and his experience on earth, Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, 30 to 33 years of age. He's crucified. The cross becomes the, the center point of all of history, the pivotal point for everything that happens is because of the cross. It's, it's, the, it's the point that turns everything from the old to a different reference and everything to the new to a different reference. The cross, the cross and the burial and the resurrection become the center point, the, the gospel point of you and I and how we live and why we live is in that cross. Then the resurrection, which is... Easter and everything we talk about, but without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. There would be no need for Christianity if Jesus was still dead. But Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And Jesus has ascended up on high. He's a mediator for you and I. We are the only people on planet Earth. We are the only religion on planet Earth that has the leader that's still alive. All other leaders of every religion are dead in tombs. They have statues. They kiss their big toes when they go there. I mean, they burn incense to them. They talk about what happened a 1,000 years ago with that leader or 500 years ago or 2,000 or 4,000. All their leaders are dead. Not one of them rose from the dead. But we have a leader that not only rose from the dead, he told you he was going to rise from the dead. He not only rose from the dead, he had 500 people that saw him the day he rose. 500 people saw the risen Christ and the word spread throughout the empire that the man that was dead is now alive. That's the leader I want to follow, is the one that was dead, but now he's alive. And that's what Christ is. He, he is the leader of a uh, Christianity, a Christianity that moves us into the supernatural, the supernatural realm. Now, when he rose from the dead, he did not ascend to heaven immediately. He rose from the dead. You have the garden experience where he talks to people, and then finally he says, go gather my disciples and meet with me. For 40 days after he rose from the dead, before he ascended up on high, he had a 40-day time period where he met 
with his disciples in Jerusalem, and he instructed them for 40 days. This is in your Bible. He instructed them for 40 days things pertaining to the kingdom of God. How would you like to be in a classroom where the guy that's teaching was dead just a few years ago, and now he's alive? A few days ago, he was on the cross, and he died, and now he's alive, and you're in a classroom with him. You can see the scars on his hand, the scars on his feet. He's the risen Christ. How would you like to be in a classroom for 40 days with somebody who died and is now alive? I would call that a great class right there. I, I would be very interested in what that man was going to say. I would be on the edge of my chair. I would be listening to every single word. For 40 days, they were on the edge of their chair listening to everything that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Now, when you come to the end of the 40 days, you had the book of Acts, chapter 1, right through the whole chapter, pretty much uh, verse 15, but the first 10 verses for sure. You have in Acts chapter 1, the last conversation, the last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And then he is going to ascend to heaven and never return until he comes back again in bodily form, the second coming of Christ. And so in that discussion, in Acts chapter 1, you have verses 6 to 8 that I'm going to refer to. You have a very interesting conversation going on with the 12 and with Jesus. And they asked him a question, Acts 1, verse 6. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Imagine that the disciples, after all the miracles, all the healings, the cross, the resurrection, and 40 days talking about the kingdom of God, and they in their minds still thought that Jesus was going to sit on the throne of David and rule Israel, and they would be his servants, the apostles, and that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. All the other nations would be subdued like they were in the Davidic times. But they are so far off. They are so far off in their thinking. And so Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Jesus immediately responds to the disciples' shortcoming thinking, wrong thinking. They are take, taking something out of context about Israel. They are, they are thinking totally wrong. But Jesus doesn't try to get into all of that. He just says, listen, it's, it, you're not going to know the times and the seasons my Father has set. So don't worry about it. Well, what about this? Don't worry about the Israel thing. Well, what about don't worry about that thing? I'm telling you, you are not to worry about these times and seasons that my father has. So what they were asking was not going to happen, but they wanted a triumphant kingdom in their lifetime, and, and they wanted the kingdom to be set up. And so today, it's interesting to me that a lot of Christians are so passionate about linking current events to biblical prophecy. I mean, as soon as the pandemic hit, you know, you had all kinds of people on Instagram and Facebook and, and programs, and they start talking about the end times and, and you know, this is preparation for the Antichrist and one, one government of the world. And, and so people start going off on all kinds of teachings about the end times. This is the end, you know, the famine and the diseases and Christ's return is very close. And so people are very interested in end times. So people listen to thousands, millions, listen to end time teachers and people talk about the end times. And what about the rapture? And what about the... Uh, persecution that we might come under? What about the great tribulation? Do you think it's our, what about the Antichrist? Is he coming or is he from the Middle East? Is he from America? Where's the Antichrist coming from? And so you have all these people with all these questions like the disciples, totally off, totally off in the questions they're asking. They're asking all the wrong questions. And so Jesus says to them, I'm going to tell you how to understand when I will return and when the kingdom will be set up. I'm going to help you understand that. That's what it says. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you have a familiar portion of scripture, and it's Jesus' answer to his disciples. He says, now, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until 
until the power comes on you. Well, we know that the 40 days teaching kingdom, line drawn, Christ ascends now. He's gone. He goes up right after this conversation. He ascends on high and has not been on planet Earth since then. Then for 10 days, they met in the upper room according to Jesus' instruction and waited for the power. So now you have 40, and then you have 10, which is 50, and 50 is the day of Pentecost. That, that's what Pentecost means, is 50. And so the day of Pentecost, according to the Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament, after the resurrection and the sheep of firstfruits, after what happened with the uh, celebration of booths, after Jesus is following the, the Feast of the Old Testament. And so when it comes to the ascension, and then it comes down to Jesus teaching what's going to happen, he says, but you have to wait. Not eight days, not 11 days, 10 days. Because the end of the 10 days will mark the beginning of something new because it will be the Feast of Pentecost. Matter of fact, that's why they gathered in Jerusalem. There were so many people there for Peter to preach to. They were all there for the Feast of Pentecost. But the Feast of Pentecost was actually going to become the outpouring of Pentecost. So what was predicted in the Old Testament now becomes fulfilled in the New Testament, and the apostles are fulfilling something they know nothing about. They're not talking about the Feast or the Day of Pentecost being the Feast of Pentecost. They're just going through what Jesus tells them, just like we do. But on that day, the Spirit fell upon them, and then you have the famous verse in Acts 2.1, and it says, when this day was fulfilled, the day of Pentecost, when it came, the Holy Spirit came with wind and fire, and they spoke in tongues, and now you have the beginning of a whole new air, which is not the air of Jesus' bodily ministry. It's now the air of the Holy Spirit ministering through people that went to the world. And so in that, you have what the apostles were going to be involved with. Are you following me? Yes. How, many, how many are learning something so far? Okay. Now, Acts 1.8. And when the Holy Spirit comes to you, you'll receive the power, dunamis, the wind, the fire, the tongues. You will be my witnesses. That's the word in the Greek for martyr. Martyr. That's what he says to them. You will be my martyrs. You will die for this cause. You start in Jerusalem, and then you will move to Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth the ends of the world, to the nations of the world. Now, what Jesus just gave them, that the disciples, they don't know this. We know it by looking back. They could not see it looking forward. That's the outline of the book of Acts. That's, that is the book of Acts right there. Because you start in Jerusalem, first six chapters, and then you go to Judea, which is just a step out of Jerusalem to the next area, to the next region. And they were going to preach in Judea, which they did and established disciples. And then they went to Samaria, which was much harder to fulfill. And then finally, the gospel mission went to the world through the Apostle Paul. He's the nation taker. He's the letter writer. He's the one going to Turkey and Greece and all these different countries and beginning to establish churches. So you have the outline to the book of Acts. Now, in that, the Acts 1-8 is every church's mandate. Would you say that out loud with me? Every church's mandate. Why is this important? Because you're in the church, and you're responsible for the mandate. The mandate is on you, not just the leadership or not just some apostle somewhere. It's the congregation. It's the church. The mandate is on you. And the mandate that we would follow would be the same that the apostles received. Acts 1.8. Notice the ministry areas that I'm responsible for in my church and you are in your church, number one is Jerusalem, which not Jerusalem over in Israel or a natural city, but symbolically speaking, this is an outline for every church. Jerusalem is our local church. It's our home base. You have to have an own, your own home base in order to Export what God does with you. You can't export what you don't have. But you start in Jerusalem as the hands and feet of Jesus, and you build a local church, and the local church is what 
the epistles are written to. So the local church becomes so important as a biblical model for us to fulfill the mission and the mandate of the body of Christ. So we have our Jerusalem where we learn to pray. We learn to worship. We learn the word of God. And we begin to think about number two, our Judea. Judea is our region. It goes just beyond our city, Hanford, to Fresno, to California. It's our state. It's our region. I have a region in Oregon, as you have a region. It's my Judea, where it says in uh, Isaiah 54, enlarge the place of your tent. Spread abroad to the right and left. That's your Judea. You spread to the regions. You begin to uh, think about the region. You begin to have heart for the region. And you, you help do things with the region, not only with natural things like feeding uh, people that are hungry or uh, partnering with other churches for your city, but in the whole region of your state, you might be involved with church planting. You might be involved with multi-site church where you start a church campus in, in Fresno, and then you go to the Bay, and then you go down to L.A., and then you go inland to uh, San Bernardino and Riverside, and, and so you start thinking about your state, and so maybe you do things for the state to take the gospel to the state of California. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility to have some involvement with your state, with your region. And third is your Samaria. Samaria represents our boundary lines with ethnic groups of people. The Jews had a hatred for the Samaritans, and the Samaritans had a hatred for the Jews. And so it represents a boundary line that has to do with the ethnic groups within the Roman Empire. There were many that they had to cross over, and that's where the church planning became very complicated because they tried to cross over into other countries, other cultures, other customs, other language, other things that were going on in different countries, and they had to cross over to different people groups that had different values and different ideas, and some of those were people that didn't get along with the people that were bringing the gospel, and that's the way it was with the Samaritans. Remember the uh, John 4 situation with the woman at the well. Remember Jesus sits down at the well and there's a woman drawing water and uh, he says to her, uh, if you drink the water I gave you, you wouldn't thirst ever again. She says, that's a funny thing for you to say because you don't even have a bucket to draw water. And so what are you talking about? And by the way, since we're having a conversation, she says, what would a Jew be talking to a Samaritan. What, why, I'm a Samaritan woman. For a Jew to talk to a Samaritan, one thing, a Samaritan woman would be even harder to understand. And so this woman says, what, what are you doing? You, you, you don't talk to Samaritans. Samaritans don't talk with you because you're a Jew. We have a hatred for your race and a hatred for hundreds of years. But Jesus crosses that boundary line and gives her the gospel and she goes in and preaches and to her own city about what happened at the well and preaches the gospel. This man I met, a Jew, has given me water to drink that I never had before. And so our Samaria is crossing ethnic boundary lines to get involved with every ethnic group in our region to find those people and to help those people. When I was pastoring in Portland, we had a lot of ethnic groups in our city, but our church didn't represent what was in the city. So we had a lot of Chinese, Koreans, Africans, Hispanics, uh, Russians, uh, Romanian. We had all these groups of people with large numbers of people, but we didn't reach them. We reach the middle-class white person with a scattering of a few ethnic people within it. But we were basically a, a, a white congregation with a sprinkle of a few other races. And so we went to the races because I taught this. I said, we are going to have to reach them. They're not going to come to us because some of them don't even like us. Some of them have a real problem with white people to begin with. And they don't have a lot of trust with America to begin with. And so they put the church in the same light. We're going to have to go to them. And so we start reaching out to uh, the people groups, uh, Cambodia group, into 
where they lived, and we began to meet them on their streets and feed some of their people and help them with uh, being part of our nation. We just start doing little things with them. We did the same things with uh, some Chinese people, with some Japanese people, with some Romanian people, with some Russian people. And we started meeting. Before you knew it, we had hundreds, literally, of these people coming to our church because we spread abroad to the right and left and went beyond the ethnic lines went beyond the ethnic lines. I had, I was <clears throat> sitting in my office one day and, and one of the, uh, he was actually on the maintenance crew, but I did not know him because we had multi-site church, a large church, and a lot of people on staff. I actually don't think I ever met the man. And so he's, he's working in the office, and so he just comes right into my office, unannounced, just comes through the door. And so I'm kind of taken back a little bit, but I don't mind, honestly. I'm an open door kind of a pastor. So he came in and said, hey, uh, what you doing? He didn't answer the greetings. He just said to me immediately, why do you hate my people? I said, uh, I don't know <laughs> if I hate your people because I don't know who your people are. He says, you keep lifting up the Romanians, and you have the Romanians on the platform, and you have the Romanian church, and you, you send money to Romania, but Romania was a country that totally harassed us and took advantage of us. He started talking about his country. I had no idea of the history of his country, but he said, why do you hate me and my people, and you love the Romanians? I said, I, I don't. I love the Romanians. I love your people. I just don't know who your people are. Well, why don't you find out who my people are? I said, what do I do? He says, you read, you pray, you talk with me, and you pray for us on the platform, and you give our people money, and you start a church in our nation. Boy, he started preaching. He's a maintenance guy. And so he's, he's just giving me the the runaround. I mean, he's telling, he's putting me in my place. And I said, you know what? You are right. I said, you are right. Said, stop, stop, stop before you martyr me. I said, you're right. We need to take care of this. And I did. But when you start reaching people groups, some of the people groups don't like each other. And so there's a inbuilt problem that comes with reaching different races of people. I remember talking to my African-American friends, and we were reaching some African-Americans, but not very many, but we had a whole community. And so I was talking to one of the pastors, and I said, uh, you know, you got to help me. I said, I want to reach into the black community, but I said, I don't know how. And I said, we've tried a number of things, and I think the church should be white, black, brown, every color, and I don't know how to do it. Why don't they respond? He says, well, he says, with your, your big white church up here in the hill, he said, when you come to our neighborhoods and bring food for the poor and help teaching the children and go house to house, it's so embarrassing for us that your big white church is the Messiah to help our community. You don't go through the pastors. You don't go through other churches. You just come as, as a separate group, and it looks to us like it's just a, another feather in your hat. You're doing this out of just being politically correct, and, and you're doing this all for the wrong reasons, so we don't respond to that. We don't want our people in your church. It was the first time I ever heard that in my life. And I said, I thought we were helping. He said, you weren't helping. You were destroying your influence in our community. We hate what you do in our community. You hate that we bring food and give money and buy chairs for me? He says, yes. He said, why don't you let us do it for our community instead of you becoming the Messiah church that does everything for everybody? I said, I didn't know that. And I said, from now on, I will change reaching into your community and reaching your people, not the way I think. When you start reaching races of people, you start reaching cultures and customs and ideas and procedures that they have about life. Even though they're in our country and in our city, you might not know at all everything they believe in their customs and their traditions. And you invite them into a big white church and say, now you become white with us. 
You become our culture, our custom, and you act just like us, you dress just like us. Well, when we started our Hispanic churches, the Hispanic church has a whole different flavor. First of all, their worship is more passionate. They put white people to shame. <laughs> and second, once I ate their food at the potluck, I never wanted to return to any other white church potluck. <laughs> it was the best food that anybody could dream of, and the fellowship was so much fun and so much laughter and so much creativity and so much food, so much food. They can't do anything about so much food. And so they're just serving your plate and another plate and this and that and introducing you to the family and every child. By the time I finish fellowship with them, I have been fellowshipped. I have been to heaven with the Hispanic people. And I learned that their culture could not be squeezed into the American white people culture. I have to honor that culture. All the Hispanic people said a big Amen. How many Hispanic people in this service? Well, welcome. And next time I come, I expect some home-cooked <laughs> tamales. I want some tamales. I want some real enchiladas. I want some sopas. I want the real food. Just remember, next time I come, I'm not calling a restaurant to deliver. I'm expecting handmade, handcrafted, the real thing from you. In Jesus' name, I challenge you for that. Okay. Reaching the races is fun, and it's a challenge. And then number four, you've got to reach the ends of the earth. And so our gospel expansion doesn't stop with, with our Jerusalem, our Judea, or our Samaria. We have to actually be a world-thinking church. Why? Why should you be a world-thinking church? Well, because God is a world-thinking God. God, when he created the earth... And the world, he thought about the whole world, all humanity, all people. I'm going to read some scriptures to you. John 3, 16. For God so loved, what's the word there? God so loved the? One more time. God so loved the? So from the beginning, when we talk about who God loved, it's a world, the whole world. And he gave his only begotten son <laughs> that whoever, <coughs> excuse me, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The supreme task of the church is to keep the world in mind. But it's so easy in our limited life, even as church people, to just live our life. You know, we got, we got to raise our children. We got to work our jobs. We, we have to get by financially. We, we have to live life. And so we're so engulfed with living life, that to think about another nation, Afghanistan, Baghdad city, uh, what about going to uh, Romania? What about uh, going to Africa? What about, what about the nations that are in Asia that you don't even know the names of these nations and they exist? When was the last time you looked at a map and just tried to go through the nations of the world and remember that there are 8 billion, 8 billion, 8 billion people on planet Earth. And out of the 8 billion, only 2 billion are named in Christianity. So there's 6 billion, there's 6 billion unreached people that are in different religions and different nations. And that's the reality. But Jesus says that our responsibility is to love this whole world. You have to shift. John 1, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the what? The Come on, say it out loud. The sin of the? World. The whole world. He's after the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the? World. The world. Everyone say the world. the world. So God was in Christ even at the time of the writing of the Corinthian epistle. He's saying he wants to reconcile the world to himself. Matthew 24, 14. Now, going back to my original beginning of this sermon, 
everybody asking about the second coming of Christ, the end times, when's it going to happen? I can save you a lot of money and a lot of time. You don't have to buy any end time books, any charts. You don't have to listen to a bunch of end time teaching. I mean, some of it's good. A lot of it's weird. And so you don't have to get into that. I'll give you the key for the second coming of Christ. It's easy. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel, everyone say this gospel. Well, the gospel is the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the reconciliation of man individually, humanity being reconciled to Christ. The gospel is not a social gospel. You can add social work, but we've almost equated the gospel with social work when it comes to the nation. So we want to dig wells. Everybody wants to give money for digging wells. It's the easiest money in the world to raise. For clean water, it's a great thing, and I give to it. It's a great thing to have water in these villages. It's a great thing to feed the poor. It's a great thing to be involved with the doctors that go over and help all the operations. It's a, that's a fantastic thing. But that is not the gospel. That is the result of people being affected by the gospel that want to help people, help humanity. But the gospel is the preaching of Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sins and establishing Christ in people. That's the gospel. So Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Come on, say the world. The world. It'll be preached where? In all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is in your Bible. You should underline it. Remember this sermon. And then... The end will come. So when is Jesus coming back? Not until this is done. Well, how do we know if it's done? I can tell you how we'll know if it's done. That this kingdom message of the gospel has to be preached to all the nations, all the nations of the world, and then the end will come. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission scripture, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go make followers of people in all the world. Everyone say the world. The world. So from, the, from that last scripture in Matthew, he said the great commission, the mandate that you have is to make sure that someone is going to preach the gospel in every nation of the world. So we come to this word world, cosmos. The word world, cosmos, has the most colorful meaning and it's mentioned the most in the scripture. But when you read every scripture that mentions the word world, they're not all the same. When you go through the Greek usage of this word, cosmos, everyone say cosmos. cosmos. Come on, say it with me. K-O-S-M-O-S, transliteration of the Greek word, cosmos. Say it again, cosmos. Turn to your neighbor and say, I've learned Greek. I'm speaking Greek now. I'm going to go to the cosmos. The cosmos does speak about the earth, the universe, and creation. That's one way the word cosmos is used. It also speaks about fallen humanity. Those that have fallen into the evilness of this age, they're under sin, under darkness. As it says in 1 John, the whole world, the whole cosmos of humanity has fallen into this darkness. And then the word cosmos also means systems and order, which is very interesting because this is used in your Bible. The word cosmos, when it says go into all the world, it has the idea into your world and outside your world, but your world is made up of systems. The system of fashion was used in Greek usage as the cosmos, fashion world, the fashion world, the political world. The, the blue-collar world of working and making garments, the, the, the world of influence that you live in, whatever your expertise is, that's your cosmos. And so you have to take the gospel into the medical world, the political world, the philosophical world, the educational world. Every part of you has to be taking the gospel to the ethnic group crossing the line, and to the cosmos group of your own systems that you're involved with. So you go into your world. Now, as we go into the world, we go to the nations, and I have to end here. Matthew 24, 14. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. The word nation is the word ethnos, which means ethnic. It talks about people, kinds, and people groups. It denotes people groups. Well, if we're going to take the gospel, remember what Jesus said. Preach the gospel to all the world. Then, then, then the end will come. How close are we? How close are we to finishing the job? I'll tell you exactly how close we are. There are 16,350 ethnic groups in our world. 16,350 recognized in their culture, their custom, their language. They are a group. They're an ethnic group all over the world, 16,000 of them. Of the 16,000, we've only reached 2,000 plus of the unreached people groups. That is, putting the Bible in their hand, preaching the gospel, maybe having a missionary go, maybe establishing a church within their culture, within their nation, within their people group, whether it's in the Amazon or it's in somewhere else in South America or somewhere uh, that you've never even heard. Uh, there's names of groups of people I've never heard of. I, I, I've never heard of that group of people. I didn't even know they existed in the world. Well, there's at least 2,600 more of them but there's 4,000 of the 16,000 that have no church and no Bible. No church, no Bible. And so you have the people that are trying to translate into the language of these groups, which is a grueling process. I have a person who works in that. It's a grueling process. It's unbelievably difficult, complicated to get the right words and, and to create a Bible, even to create a Gospel of John. It is complicated. It is a lot of work, and you have to live with them. You have to learn their words. You have to translate it over. You have to be biblically correct. The words don't mean the same. It is complicated. And so our job is to what? Preach the Gospel in all the world. That is... Those 16,350 people groups have to be reached. And if we still have another 2,600 that have not been reached at all, and 4,000 that really have been reached only maybe with a uh, partial reach, no church, no translation yet, or a very small translation, I would say that we have a lot of work to do before Christ comes back again. And so if you are in a church like this, thank God you are, that has a missions month, where you can actually give, where you can actually have a heart for specific nations. Maybe you can have a heart for specific people groups. We raise money for specific people groups that we adopted as a church. Is that okay? We're going to take care of those 10 groups right there. Those are our 10 groups to get these things done, which has a lot to do with big giving and resources etc. You have to have a heart for this. But our church took it on. And we gave big toward the groups. And we gave big toward church planning and big toward church mission. Some of you will never go to the mission field. But you can help the nations by giving toward these things that will reach those nations and not just live in our little world, but get involved with the 440 million in South America. Think about it. 1.7 billion in East Asia, the world, India, 1.4 billion. They just surpassed China. And China used to be the, you know, the billions that you cannot even fathom. We've been involved with China our whole life. I spoke in Hong Kong some years back to the 4,000 leaders that were the underground pastors of the underground church in China, which we supported and helped translate Bibles and materials into. It was the most humbling and the most uh, revealing conference I had ever been involved with. It impacted me so much to meet who these people were that, that pastored these million people around China, winning hundreds of 
thousands of people to Christ every year. I met this one gal, 22 years of age. She's 22 years of age, a little Chinese gal. You would think that she's 15. She's 22, and I was praying with her and talking with her, and she says, I pastor 4,000 people. I said, how do you do that? She says, our church services on Saturday or Sunday are at midnight to 2 in the morning. And people come from all over because we don't want to be detected and persecuted. And so I pastored them in a huge cave that seats these people. They come by the thousands. She said, would you come? Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. What kind of a cave is it? <laughs> is there a hotel nearby? Is there, you know, how do I get there? I mean, they live a life that is so, so different. But I can give to her. I can help her. I can make sure we have books and resources for her. I can be involved somehow with the underground church of China or the underground church of Afghanistan and other nations that are still not allowing Christianity. We can be involved with that. All right? My time is up. You have received my word. How, how many have gotten something out of this? Okay. How, how many of you, with just this sermon, your needle has moved a little bit toward, I really want to support missions. I, I want to be involved somewhere. I, I want to I have my own unreached people group where I, I, in my lifetime, the gospel is taken to them. That's what the church has to do to get the gospel to the world, to the whole world, to every nation of the world. Please, stand to your feet. Thank you for letting me preach to you, teach. You've been an excellent class. Haven't you? Now spread your hands toward heaven. Just everybody lift your hands toward heaven. Let's intercede just for a moment about this particular message right now that it involves you. You're part of the church. What is the Spirit saying to the church? Father, right now we are praying that the Holy Spirit will saturate every person in this room with the Holy Spirit revelation of the nations, the ethnic groups, and the world. Lord, we will be world people. We won't limit ourselves to only Jerusalem, Judea, or even Samaria. We will be world people. We will pray for the world. We will take the world. We can't take the whole world, but we can take a piece of the world. Lord, help every person here be moved to becoming that kind of a person. Let this church take these groups on. Let this church make an impact on the world. Father, bless these people. Bless their jobs, their businesses, their homes. Bless them as they give. Bless them as they go. Bless them as they get involved. Lord, we receive your word today in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone gave the Lord a big shout and a clap this morning. Come on. For the cause. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the message, and we hope to see you on a Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. Visit us online at casinghamford.com, and if you want to support our ministry, click Give. Cornelia Church, passion for God, compassion for people.